German court took a groundbreaking step today to hold Syrian officials accountable for crimes in that country's long civil war. The court convicted a former member of the Syrian security services for abetting torture. Es ist weltweit der erste Prozess um Folter durch den syrischen Staat und geurteilt hat das Oberlandesgericht Koblenz gegen At the trial prosecutors argued that Iyad Al-Kharib had helped to arrest protesters who were later tortured and murdered by the regime. He was handed a I'm Fritz from the, from the podcast. Oh, welcome. Hi, oh, hi, hi, how are you? What's your reaction? Uh, I am so happy. Uh, really uh, grateful for the court, really. Uh, how I must expect, expect it will be. Sorry, can mm -hmm. I? Yeah? Hallo? Sorry. No problem, no problem. I know. Uh, uh, I am happy because uh, uh, the decision come not against one person. I, I, I think it's it's hope message. The balance of fear is changed now. This is the first step of a long way uh, to reach uh, justice. A worldwide first finding by a criminal court of crimes against humanity committed by the Syrian regime. This is huge and long awaited after 10 long years of impunity. So this is a full and complete success, some say, or at least an important first step. But others are not as jubilant. Welcome to this special episode of Branch 251. My name is Asel Khattab. And I'm Fritz Streif. This verdict from the Koblenz court and the experiences and emotions around it are an illustration of how justice and judicial truth can mean so many different things to different people. During the trial, in the court, justice is being administered live, with witness testimonies, introduction of evidence, all the parties being involved and exercising their procedural rights. It's quite a clinical process, very rule-focused, all for a fair trial very much focused on the individual defendant and with the goal of a fair administration of justice. And that is what the judges did last Wednesday in Koblenz. The court made this very clear during the reading of its oral verdict. This decision is about an individual and his crimes, Iyad A, and his limited contributions to the larger crimes by the Assad regime. Iyad A was not on trial for the atrocities of the regime, but for his concrete and limited personal part in those atrocities, according to the court. But as soon as the verdict is spoken, as soon as members of the public leave the gallery and walk down the stairs of the courtroom and out into the open, into normal life, that clinical view on justice starts developing, 
starts changing and takes on countless shapes and forms. From that moment, the court, in a way, loses its clinical grip on the interpretation of the kind of justice that it had administered just a few minutes earlier, and then, after the court has spoken, there is ample space for more emotional and comprehensive views on justice. Our court reporter, Hannah El-Hitami, our Arabic series producer, Salim Salame, and I went to Koblenz last week. We were there to document this historic verdict and to collect impressions, voices, and opinions from Syrian court observers and activists, victims, and Iyad-A's cousin and teenage son, who were also there. Our day last Wednesday started early. We wanted to make sure that we would get some of the limited seats in the public gallery. When we arrived at the courthouse shortly before 6 a.m., there was already a group there, mostly Syrians who had queued up since before 5. It was cold, one of those really fresh early mornings of late winter. People brought hot coffee and exchanged thoughts. There was a certain nervousness in the air. Then, when we finally got in, a rumor started making the rounds. For the first time since the beginning of the trial, there would be simultaneous translation into Arabic through the speakers of the public gallery. The court announced that this was an exception to the rule. And a very welcome exception it was to the many that do not understand the trial language German and could now follow in Arabic. I could feel this meant a lot to many. Then the nervousness made way for concentration. After the prosecutor and Iad A with his lawyers came in, the judges followed, everybody rose from their seat and the presiding judge started reading the verdict. Just like the prosecutor's plea two weeks ago, the verdict also focused mainly on the larger picture of the crimes and just briefly mentioned Iad A's role in them. The presiding judge talked about the situation in Syria for more than an hour and went back all the way to the rule of Hafez al-Assad. Uh, yeah, she explained how the secret services became an instrument of power for the Assad family from the very beginning. And then she said, and I quote, Bashar al-Assad took over these structures and used the secret services, especially from 2011 on, to intimidate and annihilate the opposition. She talked in detail about the beginning of the uprising in March 2011. Uh, she talked about the first protest in Dara, uh, the military sieges of cities like Dara or Duma, and mentioned, of course, the shooting at peaceful demonstrators. Yeah, so this Syrian visitor that we talked to said that it actually really moved him emotionally when the judge described the events that happened in Syria and how she acknowledged that the protests were peaceful and that they were met with live ammunition, arbitrary detention and forced disappearance, and with protesters being tortured and even killed. The judge also mentioned the Caesar files that proved the atrocities that happened in the regime prisons, and she added that she personally would never forget these images. She referred to the internal documents that proved that orders came from the very top. These documents had been smuggled out of Syrian government offices and carefully analyzed by an NGO called Sija, and they had then been presented in court. According to the verdict, all this evidence proved that since 2011, the Syrian regime had in fact waged a widespread and systematic attack against the civilian population. And this is the definition of crimes against humanity. And the fact that she defined it as crimes against humanity 
This was why the verdict was so important to so many journalists, activists and observers from Syria. الحقيقة هو كان شيء قاسي كان عندي خليط من المشاعر ما قدرت أعرف وأنا قاعدة The Syrian woman said that she couldn't really grasp what she had felt inside the courtroom. She had had mixed feelings. She wondered whether she could really be happy because with all the crimes happening in Syria, one verdict against a small, low-ranking officer was not entirely satisfying. And she said that the crimes are continuing and that thousands are still missing. So she said that. Yeah, on the one hand, she did want to acknowledge the importance of this verdict, but at the same time, she felt that she still needed to stay rooted in reality and, you know, keep fighting for those who, who are still missing. Now, regarding the role of Iyad A, here's a quick reminder of the crimes that he was indicted for. At a protest in Duma in fall 2011, he had arrested protesters and taken them to Branch 251, even though he knew that they would be tortured there. So, in a way, he contributed a small part to making crimes against humanity possible. The judge explained that every person in Branch 251 was tortured. Everyone was held in inhumane conditions. And everyone had to hear the screams of other detainees. Nobody knew if they would get out alive. So according to her, being held in this branch was itself a form of torture. And she said that Iyad A had known about all of this. She rejected the defense's argument that he should be acquitted because he did not have a choice, that he would have risked his own life if he had not followed orders. She said he could have avoided arresting protesters, by faking an injury or an illness, or by just leaving the protest without anyone noticing, since there was a large number of security forces present. And of course, he decided by his own free will to work for the Secret Service before and after the uprising. And then the presiding judge arrived at the sentencing part of the verdict. Yet A was sentenced to four and a half years in prison for aiding and abetting crimes against humanity, specifically torture and severe deprivation of liberty. The prison sentence could have been up to 11 years for aiding and abetting crimes against humanity, but it was lowered because he had defected quite early and uh, because the court acknowledged that he had been part of a hierarchical structure and acted by command. In addition, the judges recognized in his favor that he had supported the German police with his witness testimony about the crimes in Syria, so much so that his conviction had only been possible based on his own statements about his work for the Secret Service. And some of the information he had provided was also added to the indictment against Anwar R. After having fallen asleep during the prosecutor's plea and having cried during the defense's plea two weeks ago, EDA did not show much emotion during the verdict. He looked tired and resigned. He waved a quick greeting to his teenage son and his cousin who were seated in the courtroom. نحن كعائلة إياد إلى الآن عنا إيمان إنه إياد حاول قدر المستطاع إنه ما يكون محسوب على النظام. This was the voice of Iyad's cousin, who said that the family believed that Iyad had done everything he could not to be part of the regime and its crimes, and he added that the fact that Iyad A had given his testimony to the German police proved that. He said the family would try everything to prove their point of view on his case. 
In another conversation I had with him later, he claimed that defectors like EDA were celebrated as heroes back in 2012, and that his family also had many missing and killed by the Assad regime. The defense announced they would likely appeal. That means that they do not accept the verdict and that a higher court has to check all the files of the proceeding and make sure that no mistake was made. But if in the end the verdict is confirmed, EDA has two and a half more years in prison because he has already spent two years in pretrial detention. And he might apply to get released even sooner, depending on a number of factors of which general public security and his behavior in prison are just two. I must say that it has been quite um, surprising in some in some elements. Uh, for almost a year now, we've been talking mostly about Anwar A, and um, he is, I think, objectively, um, his case is more interesting for some Syrians than Iyad A. The extent of the accusations um, against him far exceeds those against Iyad and he was on a higher level in in branch 251 uh, he's more infamous in a way so um, I didn't think that the response to to Iyad A would be that uh, much conflicted in in a certain way but I guess it makes sense because even though Iyad A was um, less prominent and less of an official he is uh, definitely more controversial um, for example, there, is, there are many people actually who believe that he should have gotten a longer sentence. They thought that he worked for the Syrian Mukhabarat, he's done bad things, he should get more than four and a half years, which sounds... And, and, and he was the first, worldwide first person exactly. to be convicted for crimes against humanity by the Syrian regime, or at least, you know, his part in it. So, right, yeah. And that's precisely why they viewed it as somewhat of a disappointment, that the yeah. first ever verdict would be somewhat resonant, somewhat, you know, scary uh, to people like him. But um, on the, And I thought that would be the predominant view. But actually, it wasn't. And um, so many opposition Syrians were talking about how Iyad A was kind of actually um, a victim of certain sense of, of hmm. this symbolism of the trial because he was, um, they, they had a certain sympathy, not with him as a person, but with his case and certain elements in it. Some people genuinely believe that he has a true story of defection from the Syrian Mukhabarat and actually yeah. switch side. And they, many people believe that he says that he um, did his best to kind of save his life while kind of trying to show that he's obeying orders, but not really obeying them. And um, I was surprised to see the extent of people who uh, sympathize, sympathize with his story, but also the extent of people who switched back and forth in their opinion on the verdict in the few days after it was issued. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't like there was uh, two camps that 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 were predetermined and met uh, in discussions after, but it was really a, an organic uh, dis discussion that also invited people to change their minds. That's interesting. Yeah, it was exactly, and uh, the exchanges were um, were heated at some point regarding how people view this, um, and uh, they were also people were you know discussing it. Uh, providing certain points, I've heard uh, survivors of detention or relatives of people who are detained saying that they actually sympathize with Iyad A. And I heard others that say, no, they, they don't have any sympathy. 
And actually, the fact that it's four and a half years um, shows that maybe this is what he exactly deserves for what he's done. Does this also have to do with the probability that there is so many others like Iyad A that, you know, used to be lower ranking, that used to be part of of the system and that people can in that way um, identify with him, you know, in, in a, yeah, in a way? Yes, in a way, yes, because people are kind of differentiate between um, the the ranks that people are serving in, whether in the army or in in even in the secret police. Especially when we're talking about um, people who volunteered or joined or or were conscripted uh, before the war, because um, it was something that people kind of just did. For example, before, it, regardless of kind of political view, because while many people knew what the Syrian regime was before twenty eleven. It was their regime. It was their country. That's what they have. That, that what they've got. This is the the army that exists, and many would go serve because they have to, because someone has to serve because there's this compulsory service, and um, some end up in the muhabarat, some end up in the army, and uh, people sometimes can accept. I mean, it's been accepted with many defectors. Now, it it goes back to the extent of of crimes that the person is accused of having committed before they defected and this was um this is brought up always and always again in in Anwar R's case in that his defection doesn't um wipe clean every accusation that's been leveled against him whereas they look at Iyad A well some people look at Iyad A as a genuinely uh, you know a genuinely or or someone who could be honest in a certain sense about his story of defection and his trajectory What did you hear from from the people that that really are quite happy about what happened in Koblenz last week? So the people who were quite happy about the verdict are also divided into people who were happy he got a verdict and he got kind of a punishment and people who were mad that the punishment was too short and and wasn't harsh enough. But in general, both both think that he is guilty and he deserves to be punished. Um, And of course, there are people who said that they expected and hoped for the maximum sentence that could be given to someone like Iyad A. So they weren't satisfied with with four and a half years. Um, They think that he brought this upon himself. He uh, volunteered in the Syrian Muhabarat, and they some said that the Syrian army would have been a little bit different, but the Muhabarat is has always been kind of vicious and harmful, whereas the army before the war, you know, didn't have much to do with civilians, for example, directly in a certain way. But they think that the Muhabarat is something else, that he certainly must have to done something that is bad, according to them, because you can't serve in a place like Branch 251 or the state security in general and not do very bad st- stuff. You have You must have condoned and participated in um, these crimes, and they think that his role uh, goes beyond arresting people and taking them, for example, to Branch 251 or to another prison. And uh, they think that he could have done much more. They would ask you, what was he doing all these years serving in the Syrian Muhabarat? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the thing about a court verdict, right? It's it's absolutely limited to the exact uh, facts or, or the exact allegations. The allegations were 35 counts. Uh, the court found... Uh, 30 of those counts to to have uh, occurred. And then that's it. Uh, of course, more happened. Of course, uh, uh, he he was active all those all those other years as well. And, and we don't we don't know what uh, what else you may have done. 
Actually, speaking of, of the symbolism of this and speaking of crimes against humanity and of these accusations, um, so many people, um, despite their discussions and thoughts about the verdict against Iyad A, they're still thinking more about Anwar R. And they were still reminding each other that there's still the case of Anwar R. that's still going. Um, those Syrians who have been talking about um, the, the verdict and who have been talking about Koblenz and trying to follow it, whether researchers or journalists or ordinary people. Um, and they have been having these discussions about Ayad A, as we said, but also keeping in mind that there is this other big fish, um, as we may call it, who is we, we're still waiting to hear about. And this is something that some of those Syrians have, have said, is that some of them would say that actually... I don't care that much about Iyad A. I'm waiting to hear about Anwar R because he is the person um, who is accused of, of more human rights violations and who used to have this more senior level in, in the Syrian Mukhabarat. But this, this trial is still going on. The Iyad A verdict of last week occurred within the framework of the trial against these two people, but is its own case. Having said that, it does, of course, serve as a direct precedent also for the other case in this trial, for the case against Anwar R, in the sense that if the court has now found that crimes against humanity occurred in that framework and in that time frame, that Anwar R was also the head of the investigations unit at that same branch, then it would be extremely uh, surprising if the court didn't come to the same conclusion in the case against Anwar R. And if that happens, then I think the the people that are looking at Anwar R's case with with curiosity in that sense, they will be you know if if that happens, they will potentially be more satisfied in 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 that sense. You know, after seeing what I saw with the discussions, I'd be inclined to imagine that um, when the verdict of Anwar R um, comes, obviously it's going to be a very big day for Syrians. I can imagine the verdict being discussed or debated um, in Syrian circles on whether it was just or he could have also got harsher. I guess we'll always have people who would say he should have got more, especially maybe Syrians who are used to um, what what a, pe a person like Anwar is accused to having done in prisons, for example. And um, I can imagine that we're going to see less sympathy when it comes to the verdict of Anwar R, on whom there is more or less of an agreement in Syrian circles, as it seems to me. Right, right. Um, we will uh, keep everybody updated uh, on how the trial continues. Um, and also, I am personally very curious to see what this verdict means outside of Koblenz, right? For other cases in, in Germany, uh, perhaps in, in Europe. And um, there are, uh, in Germany, you have the, the case against that former military hospital, Dr. Allah M., which may uh, go to trial uh, soon, um, and other European jurisdictions may have may have cases in the making. So it'll be really interesting to see how the Copeland's verdict, this this first one, um, will also be uh, referred to, um, or will be, you know, will play a role in those kinds of cases as well. Next time on Branch 251, we will again take a step back from the Koblenz trial and try to put it into a special kind of perspective for you listeners. There's a reason that the Koblenz trial is happening. There's a reason why it's very symbolic for so many Syrians around the world. And it's not only what's been happening in the past decade, but also what's been happening in the past decades in Syria. 
But um, it's an important month for so many Syrians around the world. It's been 10 years since the Syrian revolution against President Bashar al-Assad started. And so many are reflecting on it. And so much of what happened in the past 10 years have led us to where we are now with the Koblenz trial and with so many other paths to justice that are taking place. In the next episode, we're going to talk about this anniversary and what it means to Syrians and try to set things in context. See you then. See you then. Branch 251 is a 75-podcast production. This episode was hosted by Asar Khattab and Fritz Streif. Hannah El-Hitami is our court reporter. This episode was written by Fritz Streif and Hannah El-Hitami and edited by me, Pauline Peek, with additional help and feedback from Salim Salame, who recorded many of the voices we heard. We want to thank everyone who shared their reactions with us.